We're continuing with our reading of Krishna, the Supreme Personality of Godhead. We're continuing on chapter 60, talks between Krishna and Rupa. behaved with any of them. Oh, but I'm not very well behaved with any of you. So you can very easily understand that I have no steadiness in character, of character. I am not a very reliable husband. The net result of being attracted to me is to acquire a life of bereavement only. My dear beautiful princess, you may also know that I am always penniless. Just after my birth, I was carried penniless to the house of Nanda Maharaj and I was raised just like a coward boy. Although my foster father possessed many hundreds of thousands of cows, I was not the proprietor of even one of them. I was simply entrusted with taking care of them and tending them, tending them, but I was not the proprietor. Here also, I am not the proprietor of anything, but I'm always penniless. There is no cause to lament for such a penniless condition. I possessed nothing in the past, so why should I lament that I do not possess anything at present? You may note also that my devotees are not very opulent. They also are very poor in worldly goods. Persons who are very rich, possessing worldly wealth, are not interested in devotion to me or Krishna consciousness. On the contrary, when a person becomes penniless, whether by force or by circumstances, he may become interested in me if he gets the proper opportunity. Persons who are proud of their riches, even if they are often association with my devotees, do not take advantage of, con of consciousness of me. In other words, the poorer class of men may have some interest in me, but the rich men have no interest. I think, therefore, that your selection of me was not very intelligent. You appear very intelligent, trained by your father and brother, but ultimately, you have made a great mistake in selecting your life's companion. But there is no harm. The mistake can still be rectified, and it is better late than never. You are at liberty to select a suitable husband who is actually an equal to you in opulence, family tradition, wealth, beauty, education, in all respects. Whatever mistakes you may have made may be forgotten. Now you may chalk out your own lucrative path of life. Usually, a person does not establish a marital relationship with a person who is either higher or lower than his position. My dear daughter of the King Vidarbha, I think you did not consider very sagaciously before your marriage. Thus, you made a wrong selection by choosing me as your husband. You mistakenly heard about my having very exalted character, although factually I was nothing more than a beggar. Without seeing me and my actual position, simply by hearing about me, you selected me as your husband. That was not very rightly done. 
Therefore, since it is better late than never, I advise you to now select one of the great Kshatriya princes and accept him as your life's companion, and you may reject me. Krishna was proposing that Rukmini divorce him at a time when Rukmini already had many grown-up children. Therefore, Krishna's whole proposition appeared to be somewhat unexpected because according to the Vedic culture, there was no such thing as separation of husband and wife by divorce. Nor was it possible for Rukmini to choose a new husband at her advanced age when she had many married sons. To Rukmini, every one of Krishna's proposals appeared crazy and she was surprised that Krishna could say such things. Simple as she was, her anxiety was increasing more and more at the thought of separation from Krishna. Krishna continued, After all, you have to prepare yourself for the next life. I therefore advise that you select someone who can help you in both this life and the next, for I am completely unable to help. My dear beautiful princess, you know that all the members of the princely order, including Shishupal, Shalva, Jarasandha, Dantavakra, and even your elder brother, Rukmi, are my enemies. They do not like me at all. They hate me from the core of their, cores of their hearts. All these princes are very much, were very much puffed up with their worldly possessions and did not care a fig for anyone who came before them. In order to teach them some lessons, I agreed to kidnap you according to your desire. Otherwise, I actually have no love for you, although you loved me even before the marriage. As I have already explained, I am not very much interested in family life or love between husband and wife. By nature, I am not very fond of family life, wife, children, home, and opulences. As my devotees are always neglectful of all these worldly possessions, I am also like that. Actually, I am interested in self-realization. That gives me pleasure, and not this family life. After submitting his statement, Lord Krishna suddenly stopped. The great authority Shukadeva Goswami remarks that Krishna almost always passed his time with Rukmini, and Rukmini was a bit proud to be so fortunate that Krishna never left her even for a moment. Krishna, however, does not like any of his devotees to be proud. As soon as a devotee becomes so, by some tactic, he cuts down that pride. In this case also, Krishna said many things which were hard for Rukmini to hear. She could only conclude that although she was proud of her position, Krishna could be separated from her at any moment. Rukmini was conscious that her husband was not an ordinary human being. He was the Supreme Personality of Godhead, the master of the three worlds. By the way he was speaking, she was afraid of being separated from the Lord, for she had never heard such harsh words from Krishna before. Thus she became perplexed with fear of separation, and her heart began to palpitate. Without replying to a word of Krishna's statement, she simply cried in great anxiety, as if drowning in an ocean of grief. She silently scratched the floor with her toenails, which reflected reddish light on the floor. The tears from her eyes mixed with the black cosmetic ointment from her eyelids and dropped down, washing the kunkum and saffron from her breasts. Choked up on account of great anxiety, unable to speak even a word, she kept her head downward and remained standing just like a stick. Due to extremely painful fear and lamentation, she lost all her powers of reason and became weak. 
her body losing so much weight that the bangles on her wrists became slack. The chamra with which she was serving Krishna immediately fell from her hand. Her brain and memory became puzzled, and she lost consciousness. The nicely combed hair on her head scattered here and there, and she fell down straight like a banana tree cut down by a whirlwind. Lord Krishna immediately realized that Rukmini had not taken his words in a joking spirit. She had taken them very seriously, and in her, in her extreme anxiety over immediate separation from him, she had fallen into this condition. Lord Sri Krishna is naturally very affectionate toward his devotees, and when he saw Rukmini's condition, his heart immediately softened. At once he became merciful to her. The relationship between Rukmini and Krishna was like that between Lakshmi and Narayan. Therefore, Krishna appeared before Rukmini in his four-handed manifestation of Narayan. He got down from the bedstead, lifted her up, in her, lifted her up by her hands, and placing his cooling hands on her face, smoothed the scattered hair on her head. Lord Krishna dried the wet breasts of Rukmini with his hand. Understanding the seriousness of Rukmini's love for him, he embraced her to his chest. The Supreme Personality of God is expert in putting a thing reasonably for one's understanding, and thus he tried to retract all that he had said before. He is the only resort, resort for all devotees, and so he knows very well how to satisfy his pure devotees. Krishna understood that Rukmini could not follow the statements he had made in a joking way. To counteract her confusion, he spoke as follows. My dear daughter of King Vidarbha, my dear Rukmini, please do not misunderstand me. Don't be unkind to me like this. I know that you are sincerely and seriously attached to me. You are my eternal companion. The words which have affected you so much are not factual. I wanted to irritate you a bit, and I was expecting you to make counter-answers to those joking words. Unfortunately, you have taken them seriously. I am very sorry for it. I expected that your red lips would tremble in anger when you heard my statement and that you would chastise me with many words. <clears throat> oh, perfection of love, I never expected that your condition would be like this. I expected that you would cast your unblinking glance upon me in retaliation and that I would thus be able to see your beautiful face in that angry mood. My dear beautiful wife, you know that because we are householders, we are always busy in many household affairs and long for a time when we can enjoy some joking words between us. That is our ultimate gain in household life. Actually, householders work very hard day and night, but all fatigue of the day's labor is minimized as soon as they meet husband and wife together and enjoy life in many ways. Lord Krishna wanted to exhibit himself as being like an ordinary householder who delights himself by exchanging joking words with his wife. He therefore repeatedly requested Rukmini not to take those words very seriously. In this way, when Lord Krishna pacified Rukmini by his sweet words, she could understand that, he, that what he had formerly said was not actually meant seriously, but was spoken to evoke some joking pleasure between themselves. She was therefore pacified by hearing the words of Krishna. Gradually, she was freed from all fear of separation from him, and she began to look at his face very carefully with her naturally smiling face. She said, My dear lotus-eyed Lord, your statement 
that we are not a fit combination is completely right. It is not possible for me to come to an equal level with you, for you are the reservoir of all qualities, the unlimited Supreme Personality of Godhead. How can I be a fit match for you? There is no possibility of comparison with you, who are the master of all greatness, the controller of the three qualities and the object of worship for great demigods like Brahma and Lord Shiva. As far as I am concerned, I am a product of the three modes of material nature, which impede the progressive advancement of devotional service. When and where can I be a fit match for you? My dear husband, you have rightly said that you have taken shelter in the water of the sea as if you were afraid of the kings. But who are the kings of this material world? I do not think that the so-called royal families are kings of the material world. The kings of the material world are the three modes of material nature, who are actually its controllers. You are situated in the core of everyone's heart, where you remain completely aloof from a touch of the three modes of material nature, and there is no doubt about it. You say you always maintain enmity with the worldly kings, but who are the worldly kings? I think the worldly kings are the senses. They are most formidable, and they control everyone. Certainly you maintain enmity with these material senses. You are never under the control of the senses. Rather, you are the controller of the senses, Rishikesha. My dear Lord, you have said that you are bereft of all royal power, and that is also correct. Not only are you bereft of supremacy over the material world, but even your servants, those who have some attachment to your lotus feet, also give up supremacy over the material world because they consider the material position to be the darkest region which checks the progress of spiritual enlightenment. Your servants do not like material supremacy. So what to speak of you? <clears throat> My dear Lord, your statement that you do not act as an ordinary person with a particular aim in life is also perfectly correct. Even your great devotees and servants, known as great sages and saintly persons, remain in such a state that no one can get any clue as to the aim of their lives. Human society considers them crazy and cynical. Their aim of life remains a mystery to the common human being. The lowest of mankind can know neither you nor your servants. A contaminated human being cannot even imagine the pastimes of you and your devotees. O oh, unlimited one, when the activities and endeavors of your devotees remain a mystery to the common human beings, how can your motives and endeavors be understood by them? <clears throat> All kinds of energies and opulences are engaged in your service, but still they rest at your shelter. You have described yourself as penniless, but this condition is not poverty. Since there is nothing in existence but you, you do not need to possess anything. You, you, you yourself are everything. Like, unlike others, you do not require to purchase anything extraneously. 
With you, all contrary things can be adjusted because you are absolute. You do not possess anything, but no one is richer than you. In the material world, no one can be rich without possessing. Since your lordship is absolute, you can adjust the contradiction of possessing nothing, but at the same time being the richest. In the Vedas, it is stated that although you have no material hands and legs, you accept everything offered in devotion by the devotees. You have no material eyes and ears, but still you can see and hear everything, everywhere. Although you do not possess anything, the great demigods who accept prayers and worship from others come and worship you to, sol to solicit your mercy. How can you be categorized among the poor? My dear Lord, you have also stated that the richest section of human society does not worship you. This is also correct, because persons who are puffed up with material possessions think of utilizing their property for sense gratification. When a poverty-stricken man becomes rich, he makes a program for sense gratification due to his ignorance of how to utilize his hard-earned money. Under the spell of the external energy, he thinks that his money is properly employed in sense gratification, and thus he neglects to, re neglects to render you devotional service. My dear Lord, you have stated that persons who possess nothing are very dear to you. Renouncing everything, your devotee wants to possess only you. I see, therefore, that a great sage like Narada Muni, who does not possess any material property, is still very dear to you. And such persons do not care for anything but your lordship. My dear Lord, you have stated that a marriage between persons equal in social standing, beauty, riches, strength, influence, and renunciation can be a suitable match. But this status of life can be possible only by your grace. You are the supreme, perfectional source of all opulences. <clears throat> Whatever opulent status one may have is all derived from you. As described in the Vedanta Sutra, you are the supreme source from which everything emanates, the reservoir of all pleasures. Therefore, persons endowed with knowledge desire only to achieve you and nothing else. To achieve your favor, they give up everything, even the transcendental realization of Brahman. You are the supreme, ultimate goal of life, you are the reservoir of all interests of the living entities. Those who are actually well-motivated desire only you. And for this reason they give up everything to attain success. They therefore deserve to associate with you. In the society of the servitors and served in Krishna consciousness, one is not subjected to the pains and pleasures of material society which functions according to sex attraction. Therefore, everyone, whether man or woman, should seek to be an associate in your society of servitors and served. 
You are the supreme personality of Godhead. No one can excel you, nor can anyone come up to an equal level with you. The perfect social system is that in which you remain the center, being served as the supreme, and all others engage as your servitors. In such a perfectly constructed society, everyone can remain eternally happy and blissful. My Lord, you have stated that only the beggars praise your glories, and that is also perfectly correct. But who are those beggars? Those beggars are all exalted devotees, liberated personalities, and those in the renounced order of life. They are all great souls and devotees who have no other business than to glorify you. Such great souls forgive even the worst offenders. These so-called beggars execute their spiritual advancement in life, tolerating all tribulations in the material world. My dear husband, do not think that I accepted you as my husband out of my inexperience. Actually, I followed all these great souls. I followed the path of these great beggars and decided to surrender my life under your lotus feet. You have said that you are penniless, and that is correct, for you distribute yourself completely to these great souls and devotees. Knowing this fact perfectly well, I rejected even such great personalities as Lord Brahma and King Indra. My Lord, the great time factor acts under your direction only. The time factor is so great and powerful that within moments it can effect devastation anywhere within the creation. Considering all these factors, I thought Jarasandha, Shishupal, and similar princes who wanted to marry me to be more no more important than ordinary insects. My dear all-powerful son of Vasudev, your statement that you have taken shelter within the water of the ocean out of fear of all the great princes is quite unsuitable. For my experience with you contradicts this. I have actually seen that you kidnapped me forcibly in the presence of all these princes. At the time of my marriage ceremony, simply by giving a jerk to the string of your bow, you very easily drove the others away and kindly gave me shelter at your lotus feet. I still remember vividly how you kidnapped me in the same way that a lion forcibly takes its share of hunted booty, driving away all small animals within the twinkling of an eye. My dear lotus-eyed Lord, I cannot understand your statement that women and other persons who have taken shelter under your lotus feet pass their days only in bereavement. From the history of the world, we can see that princes like Anga, Prithu, Bharata, Yayati, and Gaya were all great emperors of the world, and there were no competitors to their exalted positions. But in order to achieve the favor of your lotus feet, they renounced their exalted positions and entered the forest to practice penances and austerities. When they voluntarily accepted such a position, accepting your lotus feet as all in all, does it mean that they were in lamentation and bereavement? My dear Lord, you have advised me that I can still select another from the princely order and divorce myself from your companionship. But, my dear Lord, 
It is perfectly well known to me that you are the reservoir of all good qualities. Great saintly persons like Narada Muni are always engaged simply in glorifying your transcendental characteristics. Someone who simply takes shelter of such a saintly person immediately comes freed from all material contamination. And when he comes in direct contact with your service, the goddess of fortune agrees to bestow all her blessings. Under the circumstances, what woman who has once heard of your glories from the authoritative sources and has somehow or other relished the nectarian fragrance of your lotus feet would be foolish enough to agree to marry someone of this material world who is always afraid of death, disease, old age, and rebirth. I have therefore accepted your lotus feet not without consideration, but after mature and deliberate decision. My dear Lord, you are the master of the three worlds. You can fulfill all the desires of all your devotees in this world and the next because you are the supreme soul of everyone. I have therefore selected you as my husband, considering you to be the only fit personality. You may throw me in any species of life according to the reactions of my fruit of activities, and I haven't the least concern for this. My only ambition is that I may always remain fast to your lotus feet. For you can deliver your devotees from illusory material existence and are always prepared to distribute yourself to your devotees. My dear Lord, you have advised me to select one of the princes such as Shishupal, Jarasandha, or Dantavakra. But what is their position in this world? They are always engaged in hard labor to maintain their household life, just like the bulls working hard day and night with an oil-pressing machine. They are compared to asses, beasts of burden. They are always dishonored like dogs, and they are miserly like cats. They have sold themselves like slaves to their wives. Any unfortunate woman who has never heard of your glories may accept such a man as her husband. But a woman who has learned about you, that you are praised not only in this world, but in the halls of the great demigods like Lord Brahma and Lord Shiva, will not accept anyone besides you as her husband. A man within this material world is just a dead body. In fact, superficially, the living entity is covered by this body, which is nothing but a bag of skin decorated with a beard and mustache, hairs on the body, nails on the fingers, and hairs on the head. Within this decorated bag are bunches of muscles, bundles of bones, and pools of blood, always mixed with stool, urine, mucus, bile, and polluted air, and enjoyed by different kinds of insects and germs. A foolish woman accepts such a dead body as her husband and, in sheer misunderstanding, loves him as her dear companion. This is possible only because such a woman has never relished the ever-blissful fragrance of your lotus feet. My dear lotus-eyed husband, you are self-satisfied. You do not care whether or not I am beautiful or qualified. You are not at all concerned about it. Therefore, your non-attachment for me is not at all astonishing. It is quite natural. You cannot be attached to any woman, however exalted her position and beauty. Whether you are attached to me or not, may my devotion and attention be always engaged at your lotus feet. The material mode of passion is also your creation. So when you passionately glance upon me, I accept it as the greatest boon of my life. I am ambitious only for such auspicious moments. 
After hearing Rukmini's statement and her clarification of each and every word he had used to arouse her anger of love toward him, Krishna addressed Rukmini as follows, My dear chaste wife, my dear princess, I expected such an explanation from you, and only for this purpose did I speak all those joking words, so that you might be cheated of the real point of view. Now my purpose has been served. The wonderful explanation you have given of my every word is completely factual and approved by me. O most beautiful Rukmini, you are my dear most wife. I am greatly pleased to understand how much love you have for me. Please take it for granted that no matter what ambition you desire you might have and no matter what you might expect from me, I am always at your service. And it is a fact also that my devotees, my dear most friends and servitors, are always free from material contamination, even though they are not inclined to ask me for such liberation. My devotees never desire anything from me except to be engaged in my service, and yet because they are completely dependent upon me, even if they are found to ask something from me, that is not material. Such ambitions and desires, instead of becoming the cause of material bondage, become the source of liberation from this material world. My dear, chaste and pious wife, I have tested on the basis of strict chastity your love for your husband, and you have passed the examination most successfully. I have purposely agitated you by speaking many words not applicable to your character, but I am surprised to see that not a pinch of your devotion to me has been deviated from its fixed position. My dear wife, I am the bestower of all benedictions, even up to the standard of liberation from this material world, and it is I only who can stop the continuation of material existence and call one back home, back to Godhead. One whose devotion for me is adulterated worships me for some material benefit just to keep himself in the world of material happiness, culminating in the pleasure of sex life. One who engages himself in severe penances and austerities just to attain this material happiness is certainly under the illusion of my external energy. Persons who are engaged in my devotional service simply for the purpose of material gain and sense gratification are certainly very foolish. For material happiness based on sex life is available in the most abominable species of life such as the hogs and dogs. No one should try to approach me for such happiness, which is available even if one is put into a hellish condition of life. It is better, therefore, for persons who are simply after material happiness and not after me to remain in that hellish condition. Material contamination is so strong that everyone is working very hard day and night for material happiness. The show of religion, austerity, penance, humanitarianism, philanthropy, politics, science, everything is aimed at realizing some material benefit. For the immediate success of material benefit, materialistic persons generally worship different demigods, and under the spell of material propensities, they sometimes take to devotional service of the Lord. But sometimes it so happens that if a person sincerely serves the Lord and at the same time maintains material ambitions, the Lord very kindly removes the sources of material happiness. Not finding any recourse in material happiness, the devotee then engages himself 
absolutely in pure devotional service. Lord Krishna continued, My dear best of queens, I clearly understand that you have no material ambition. Your only purpose, your only purpose is to serve me and you have long been engaged in unalloyed service. Exemplary unalloyed devotional service not only can bestow upon the devotee liberation from this material world, but it also promotes him to the spiritual world to be eternally engaged in my service. Persons too much addicted to material happiness cannot render such service. Women whose hearts are polluted and full of material desires devise various means of sense gratification while outwardly showing themselves to be great devotees. My dear honored wife, although I have thousands of wives, I do not think that any of them can love me more than you. The practical proof of your extraordinary position is that although you had never seen me before our marriage and had simply heard about me from a third person, still your faith in me was so much fixed that even in the presence of many qualified, rich, and beautiful men of the royal order, you did not select any one of them as your husband, but insisted on having me. You neglected all the princes present, and very politely you sent me a confidential letter inviting me to kidnap you. While I was kidnapping you, your elder brother Rukmi violently protested and fought with me. As a result of the fight, I defeated him mercilessly and disfigured his body. At the time of Aniruddha's marriage, when they were all playing chess, there was another fight with your brother Rukmi on a controversial verbal point and my elder brother Balaram finally killed him. I was surprised to see that you did not utter even a word of protest over this incident. Because of your great anxiety that you might have be separated from me, you suffered all the consequences without speaking even a word. As the result of this great silence, my dear wife, you have purchased me for all time. I have, I have come eternally under your control. You sent your messenger inviting me to kidnap you, and when you found that there was a little delay in my arriving on the spot, you saw the whole world as vacant. At that time, you concluded that your beautiful body was not fit to be touched by anyone else. Therefore, thinking that I was not coming, you decided to commit suicide and immediately end that body. My dear Rukmini, such great and exalted love for me will always remain within my soul. As far as I am concerned, it is not within my power to repay you for your unalloyed devotion to me. The Supreme Personality of Godhead Krishna certainly has no business being anyone's husband or son or father because everything belongs to him and everyone is under his control. He does not require anyone's help for his satisfaction. He is Atmarama, self-satisfied. He, he can derive all pleasure by, by himself without anyone's help. 
But when the Lord descends to play the part of a human being, he plays a role either as a husband, son, friend, or enemy in full perfection. As such, when he was playing as the perfect husband of the queens, <clears throat> especially of Rukminiji, he enjoyed conjugal love in complete perfection. According to Vedic culture, although polygamy is allowed, none of one's wives should be ill-treated. In other words, one may take many wives only if he is able to satisfy all of them equally as an ideal householder. Otherwise, it is not allowed. Lord Krishna, as the world teacher, therefore, even though he had no need for a wife, he expanded himself into as many forms as he had wives, and he lived with them as an ideal householder, observing the regulated principles, rules, and commitments in, in accordance with the Vedic injunctions and the social laws and customs of society. For each of his 16,108 wives, he simultaneously maintained different palaces, different establishments, and different atmospheres. Thus the Lord, although one, exhibited himself as 16,108 ideal householders. Thus and the Bhaktivedanta purport of the 60th chapter of Krishna talks between Krishna and Rukmini. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare. Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama. Rama Rama Hare 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 Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare. Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. Hare. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, 
Krishna Krishna Hare 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 Rama Hare Rama 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 Hare 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 Krishna Hare Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare. Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare. Hari Rama, Hari Rama, Rama Rama, Hari Hari. Hari Krishna, Hari Krishna. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Shankishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare.
Nitaikor Haribo 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 Nitaikor Haribo Nitaikor Haribo 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 Nitaikor Haribo Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Narayanam Namaskritya Naram Chaiva Narotamam Devim Sarasatim Vyasam Tato Jayam Udiraye We're continuing our reading of Krishna book and we're at chapter 61 The Genealogy of the Family of Krishna Krishna had 16,108 wives <clears throat> and each of them and in each of them he begot 10 sons all of them equal to their father in opulences of strength beauty wisdom fame wealth and renunciation like father like son all the 16,108 wives of Krishna were princesses and when each saw that Krishna was always present in her respective palace and did not leave home, she considered Krishna a hen-pecked husband who was very much attached to her. Every one of them thought that Krishna was her very obedient husband, but actually Krishna had no attraction for any of them. Although each thought that she was the only wife of Krishna and was very, very dear to him, Lord Krishna, being Atmarama, self-sufficient, felt neither attraction nor enmity toward any one of them. He, is, he was equal to all the wives and treated them as a perfect husband would, just to please them. For him, there was no need of, a, of even a single wife. In fact, since they were women, the wives could not understand the exalted position of Krishna, nor the truths about him. All the princesses who were wives of Krishna were exquisitely beautiful, and each one of them was attracted by Krishna's eyes, which were just like lotus petals, and by his beautiful face, long arms, beautiful ears, pleasing smile, humorous talk, and sweet words. Influenced by these features of Krishna, they all used to dress themselves very attractively, desiring to attract him by their feminine bodily appeal. They exhibited their feminine characteristics by smiling and moving their eyebrows, thus shooting sharp arrows of conjugal love, just to awaken Krishna's lusty desires for them. Still, they could not arouse Krishna's mind or his sexual appetite. This means that Krishna never had any sexual relations with any of his many wives, save and except to beget children. The queens of Dwarka were so fortunate that they got Lord Sri Krishna as their husband and personal companion, although he is not approachable by exalted demigods like Brahma. Lord Krishna and his queens remained together as husband and wife, and Krishna, as an ideal husband, treated them in such a way that at every moment <clears throat> there was an increase of transcendental bliss. 
in their smiling exchanges, talking and mixing together. Each and every wife had hundreds and thousands of maidservants, yet when Krishna entered the palaces of his thousands of wives, each one of them used to receive Krishna personally by seating him in a nice chair, worshipping him with all requisite paraphernalia, personally washing his lotus feet, offering him betel nuts, massaging his legs to relieve them of fatigue, fanning him and to make him comfortable, offering all kinds of scented sandalwood pulp, oils and aromatics, putting flower garlands on his neck, dressing his hair, getting him to lie down on the bed and assisting him to take his bath, in taking his bath. Thus they served Krishna always in every respect, especially when he was eating. They always engaged in the service of the Lord. Each of Krishna's 16,108 queens had ten sons. The sons of the first eight queens are listed as follows. By Rukmini, Krishna had the following ten sons, Pradyumna, Chaturdeshna, Sudeshna, Chadudeha, Sucharu, Chadugupta, Badracharu, Chandra, Vicharu, and Charu. None of them were inferior in their qualities to their divine father, Lord Krishna. The names of such Abhamas, ten sons are as follows, Banu, Subanu, Swarbanu, Prabhanu, Banuman, Chandrabanu, Brihadbanu, Atibanu, Sribanu, and Pratibanu. The ten sons of the next queen, Jambavati, were headed by Samba. Their names are as follows, Samba, Sumitra, Purujit, Shatajit, Sahasrajit, Vijay, Chitraketu, Vasuman, Dravida, and Kratu. Lord Krishna was specifically very affectionate to the sons of Jambavati. The ten sons Lord Krishna had by his wife Satya, the daughter of King Nagnajit, were as follows, Vira, Chandra, Ashvasena, Chitragu, Vegavan, Risha, Ama, Shanku, Vasu, and Kunti. <clears throat> amongst, <clears throat> amongst all of them, Kunti was very powerful. <clears throat> Krishna's ten sons by Kalindi were as follows. Shruta, Kavi, Vrisha, Vira, Subahu, Badra, Shanti, Darsha, Purnamasa, and Somaka the youngest son. The ten sons Lord Krishna begot in his next wife, Lakshmana, the daughter of the king of Madras province, were named Pragosh, Gatravan, Singha, Bala, Prabala, Urdaga, <coughs> Mahashakti, Saha, Oja, and Aparajita. The ten sons of his next wife, Mitrabinda, were as follows. Brika, Harsha, Anila, Gridra, Bardana, Unada, Mahamsa, Pavana, Bani, and Chudi. The ten sons of his next wife, Badra, were named Sangamajit, Briyatsena, Shura, Praharana, Arijit, Jaya, Subhadra, Vama, Ayur, and Satyaka. Besides these eight chief queens, Krishna had 16,100 other wives, and all of them also had ten sons each. <clears throat> the eldest son of Rukmini, Prajumna, was married with Mayavati from his very birth, and afterwards he married 
Rukmavati, the daughter of his maternal uncle, Rukmi. From Rukmavati, Prajumna had a son named Aniruddha. In this way, Krishna's family, Krishna and his wives, along with their sons and grandsons, and even great-grandsons, all combined together to include very nearly one billion family members. Hare Krishna. You know, a, lot of, a lot of birthdays to remember there. Huh? <clears throat> Rukmi, the elder brother of Krishna's first wife, Rukmini, was greatly harassed and insulted in his fight with Krishna. But on the request of Rukmini, his life was spared. Since then, Rukmi held a great grudge against Krishna and was always inimical toward him. Nevertheless, his daughter married Krishna's son, and his granddaughter married Krishna's grandson, Aniruddha. This fact appeared a little astonishing to Maharaj Parikshit when he heard it from Sugadev Goswami. And the king addressed him as follows, I am surprised that Rukmi and Krishna, who were so greatly inimical to one another, could again be united by marital relationships between their descendants. Parikshit Maharaj was curious about the mystery of this incident, and therefore he inquired further from Shukadeva Goswami. Because Shukadeva Goswami was a perfect yogi, nothing was hidden from his power of insight. A perfect yogi like Shukadeva Goswami can see past, present, and future in all details. Therefore, from such yogis or mystics, nothing can be concealed. When Parikshit Maharaj inquired from Shukadeva Goswami, Shukadeva Goswami answered as follows. Prajumna, the eldest son of Krishna, born of Rukmini, was Cupid himself. <clears throat> he was so beautiful and attractive that the daughter of Rukmi, namely Rukmanavati, could not select any husband other than Prajumna during her Swayamvara. Therefore, in that selection meeting, she garlanded Prajumna in the presence of all the other princes. When there was a fight among the princes, Prajumna came out victorious, and therefore Rukmi was obliged to offer his beautiful daughter to Prajumna. Although enmity always blazed in Rukmi's heart because of his having been insulted by Krishna's kidnapping of his, sus of his sister, Rukmini, Rukmi could not resist con consenting to the marriage ceremony just to please Rukmini when his daughter selected Prajumna as her husband. And so Prajumna became the son-in-law as well as the nephew of Rukmi. Besides the ten sons described above, Rukmini had one beautiful daughter with big eyes and she was married to Kritavarma's son whose name was Bali. Although Rukmi was a veritable enemy of Krishna, he had great affection for his sister, Rukmini, and wanted to please her in all respects. On this account, when Rukmini's grandson, Aniruddha, was to be married, Rukmi offered his granddaughter, to Ro granddaughter Rochana to Aniruddha. <clears throat> Such a marriage between immediate cousins is not very much sanctioned by the Vedic culture, but in order to please Rukmini, Rukmi offered his daughter and granddaughter to the son and grandson of Krishna, 
respectively. In this way, when the negotiation of the marriage of Aniruddha with Rochana was complete, a big marriage party accompanied Aniruddha and started from Dwarka. They traveled until they reached Bojakata, which Rukmi had colonized after his sister had been kidnapped by Krishna. This marriage party was led by the grandfather, namely Lord Krishna, accompanied by Lord Balaram, and it included Krishna's first wife, Rukmini. His son, Prajumna, Jambavati's son, Samba, and many other relatives and family members. They reached the town of Bojakata, and the marriage ceremony was peacefully performed. The king of Kalinga was a friend of Rukmi's and gave him the ill advice to play chess with Balaram and thus defeat him in a bet. Among Chetriya kings, gambling on chess was not uncommon. If someone challenged a Chetriya to play on the chessboard, the Chetriya could not refuse the challenge. Sri Balaramaji was not very expert, was not a very expert chess player, and this was known to the king of Kalinga. So Rukmi was advised to retaliate against the family members of Krishna by challenging Balaram to play chess. Although not an expert chess player, Sri Balaramaji was very enthusiastic in sporting activities. He accepted Rukmi's challenge. <clears throat> and sat down to play. Betting was with, betting was with gold coins, and Balaram's first of, Balaram first of all challenged with 100 coins, then 1,000 coins, then 10,000 coins. Each time Balaram lost, and Rukmi was victorious. She Balaram's losing the game was an opportunity for the king of Kalinga to criticize Krishna and Balaram. Thus, the king of Kalinga was talking jokingly, jokingly, while purposefully showing his teeth to Balaram. Because Balaram was the loser in the game, he was little intolerant of the sarcastic, joking words and became somewhat agitated. Rukmi again challenged Balaram and made a bet of a hundred thousand gold coins. But fortunately, this time, Balaram won. Nonetheless, out of cunningness, Rukmi claimed that Balaram was the loser and that he himself had won. Because of this lie, Balaramji became most angry with Rukmi. His agitation was so sudden and great that it appeared like a tidal wave in the ocean on a full moon day. Balaram's eyes are naturally reddish, and when he became agitated and angry, his eyes became more reddish. This time, he challenged and made a bet of a hundred million coins. <laughs> Again, Balaram, he's creator of the universe. What's the problem for him? You know. <clears throat> Again, Balaram was the winner according to the rules of chess. But Rukmi again cunningly claimed that he had won. That he had won. Rukmi appealed to the prince's presence, and he especially mentioned the name of the king of Kalinga. During the dispute, there was a voice from the sky 
and it announced that for all honest purposes, Balaram was the actual winner of this game, that he was being abused, and that the statement of Rukmi that he had won was absolutely false. In spite of this divine voice, Rukmi insisted that Balaram had lost, and by his persistence it appeared that he had death upon his head. Falsely puffed up by the ill advice of his friend, he did not give much importance to the oracle, and he began to criticize Balaramaji. He said, My dear Balaramaji, you two brothers, coward boys only, may be very expert in tending cows, but how can you be very expert playing chess or shooting arrows on the battlefield? These arts are well known only to the princely order. Hearing this kind of pinching talk by Rukmi and hearing the loud laughter of all the other princes present there, Lord Balaram became as agitated as burning cinders. He immediately took his club in his hand and, without further talk, struck Rukmi on the head. From that one blow, Rukmi fell down immediately and was dead and gone. Thus Rukmi was killed by Balaram on that auspicious occasion of Aniruddha's marriage. These things are not very uncommon in Kshatriya society. The king of Kalinga, afraid that he would be the next one attacked, fled from the scene, but he could escape, but he could escape even a few steps, however. But he could escape even a few steps? What do you got there? Before he could escape even a few steps, however, Balaramaji immediately captured him, and because the king had always shown his teeth while criticizing Balaram and Krishna, Balaram broke all of the king's teeth with his club. The other princes supporting the king of Kalinga and Rukmi were also captured, and Balaram beat them with his club, breaking their legs and hands. They did not try... <laughs> They did not try to retaliate, but thought it wise to run away from the bloody scene. I'm just laughing because so many times we sold Krishna books in the airport. And it was like, yeah, these books are about how to be more in harmony with nature. <laughs> like, <laughs> he broke his arms, legs, broke his teeth. And he, they thought it was wise to run away from the bloody scene. During this strife between Balaram and Rukmi, Lord Krishna did not utter a word, for he knew that if he supported Balaram, Rukmini would be unhappy. And if he said that the killing of Rukmi was unjust, then Balaram would be unhappy. Therefore, Lord Krishna was silent on the death of his brother-in-law, Rukmi, on the occasion of his grandson's marriage. He did not disturb his affectionate relationship with either Balaram or Rukmini. After this, the bride and bridegroom were ceremoniously seated on the chariot, and they started for Dwarka accompanied by the bridegroom's party, onward and upward. The bridegroom's party was always protected by Lord Krishna, the killer of the Madhu demon. Thus they left Rukmi's kingdom, Bojakata, and happily started for Dwarka. Thus ends the Bhaktivedanta purport of the 61st chapter of Krishna, the geneal genealogy of the family of Krishna. Bravo. Bravissimo.
Okay. If anybody can remember all the names of the the kids for the eight of queens of Krishna, then you get one ladu. Can you remember them all? You remember one? Anila. Okay. Yeah? You have to remember them all from top to bottom. Go ahead. You try now. No, no, I don't. No, I just remember that they were quite similar, these names. And in, the end, in the end, they were more mixed. <laughs> Get him a lot of I think he's. So, chapter 62 the meaning of Usha and Aniruddha. The meeting of Aniruddha and Usha which caused a great fight between Lord Krishna and Lord Shiva, is very mysterious and interesting. Maharaj Prikshit was eager to hear the whole story from Shukadeva Goswami, and thus Shukadeva narrated it. My dear king, you must have heard the name of King Bali. He was a great devotee who gave away in charity all that he had, namely the whole world, to Lord Vamanadeva, the incarnation of Vishnu as a dwarf Brahmana. King Bali had 100 sons, and the eldest of all of them was Banasura. This great hero, Banasura, born of Bali Maharaj, was a great devotee of Lord Shiva and was always ready to render service unto him. Because of his devotion, Banasura achieved a great position in society, and he was honored in every respect. Actually, he was very intelligent and liberal also, and his activities are all praiseworthy because he never deviated from his promise and word of honor. He was very truthful and fixed in his vow. In those days, he was ruling over the city of Shunitapur. By the grace of Lord Shiva, Banasura had 1,000 arms, and he became so powerful that even demigods like King Indra were serving him most obediently. Long ago, when Lord Shiva was dancing in his celebrated fashion, called Tandavanritya, for which he is known as Nataraj. Banasura helped Lord Shiva in his dancing by rhythmically beating drums with his 1,000 arms, 1,000 hands. Lord Shiva is known, Lord Shiva is well known as Ashutosh, very easily pleased, and he is also very affectionate to his devotees. He is a great protector for persons who take shelter of him and is the master of all living entities in this material world. Being pleased with Banasura, he said, Whatever you desire, you can have from me, for I am very much pleased with you. Banasura replied, My dear Lord, if you please, you can remain in my city just to protect me from the hands of my enemies. Once upon a time, Banasura came to offer his respects to Lord Shiva. By touching the lotus feet of Lord Shiva with his helmet, which was shining like the sun globe, he offered his obeisances unto him. While offering his respectful obeisances, Banasura said, My dear Lord, anyone who has not fulfilled his ambition will be able to do so by taking shelter of your lotus feet, which are just like a desire tree from which one can take anything he desires. My dear Lord, you have given me 1,000 arms, but I do not know what to do with them. They are simply a burden. I cannot use them properly in fighting since I cannot find anyone competent to fight with me except your Lordship, the original father of the material world. Sometimes I feel a great tendency to fight with my arms, 
and I go out to find a suitable warrior. Unfortunately, everyone flees, knowing my extraordinary power. Being baffled at not finding a match, I satisfy the itching of my arms by beating them against the mountains. In this way, I tear many great mountains to pieces. Lord Shiva realized that his benediction had become troublesome for Banasura and addressed him, You rascal, you are very eager to fight, but since you have no one to fight with, you are distressed. Although you think there is no one in the world to oppose you except me, I say that you will eventually find such a competent person. At that time, your days will come to an end and your flag of victory will no longer fly. Then you will see your false prestige smash to pieces. After hearing Lord Shiva's statement, Vanasura, who was very much puffed up with his power, became elated that he would meet someone able to smash him to pieces. Banasura then returned home with great pleasure, and he always waited for the day when the suitable fighter would come to cut down his strength. He was such a foolish demon that it appears that foolish, demoniac human beings, when unnecessarily overpowered with material opulences, want to exhibit these opulences, and such foolish people feel satisfaction when these opulences are exhausted. The idea is that they do not know how to expend their energy for right causes, being unaware of, of the benefit of Krishna consciousness. Actually, there are two classes of men. One is Krishna conscious and the other is non-Krishna conscious. The non-Krishna conscious men are generally devoted to the demigods, whereas the Krishna conscious men are devoted to the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Krishna's, Krishna conscious persons utilize everything for the service of the Lord. The non-Krishna conscious persons utilize everything for sense gratification and Banasura is a perfect example of such a person. For his own satisfaction, he was very eager to utilize his extraordinary power to fight. Not finding any combatant, he struck his powerful arms against the mountains, breaking them to pieces. In contrast to this, Arjuna also possessed extraordinary powers for fighting, but he utilized them only for Krishna. Banasura had a very beautiful daughter whose name was Usha. When she had attained the age of marriage and was sleeping amongst her many girlfriends, she dreamt one night that Aniruddha was by her side and she was enjoying a conjugal relationship with him, although she had never actually seen him or heard of him before. She awoke from her dream, exclaiming very loudly, My dear beloved, where are you? Being exposed to her friends in this way, she became a little ashamed. One of Usha's girlfriends was Chitraleka, who was the daughter of Banasura's prime minister. Chitraleka and Usha were intimate friends, and out of great curiosity, Chitraleka asked, My dear beautiful princess, as of yet you are not married to any young boy, nor have you seen any boys until now. So I am surprised that you are exclaiming like this. Who are you searching after? Who is your suitable match? On hearing Chitraleka's inquiries, Usha replied, My dear friend, in my dream I saw a nice young man who is very, very beautiful. His complexion is swarthy, his eyes are like lotus petals, and he is dressed in yellow garments. His arms are very long, and his general bodily features are so pleasing that a young girl, any young girl would be attracted. I feel much pride in saying that this beautiful young man was kissing me, and I was very much enjoying the nectar of his kissing. But I am sorry to inform you that just after this he disappeared and I have been thrown into the whirlpool of disappointment. My dear friend, I am very anxious to find this wonderful young man, the desired Lord of my heart.
darkish. Yeah. <clears throat> After hearing Usha's words, Chetuleka immediately replied, I can understand your bereavement, and I assure you that if this boy is within these three worlds, the upper, middle, and lower planetary systems, I must find him for your satisfaction. If you can identify him from your dream, I shall bring you peace of mind. Now, let me draw some pictures for you to inspect. And as soon as you find a picture of your desired husband, let me know. It doesn't matter where he is. I know the art of bringing him here. So as soon as you identify him, I shall immediately arrange for it. Chitaleka, while talking, began to draw many pictures of the demigods inhabiting the higher planetary systems, then pictures of the Gandharvas, Siddhas, Charanas, Panagas, Daityas, Vijadras, and Yakshas, as well as many pictures of human beings. The statements of Srimad Bhagavatam and other Vedic literatures prove definitely that on each and every planet there are living entities of different varieties. Therefore it is foolish to assert that there are no living entities but those on this earth. Chetraleka drew, drew many pictures. Among the human beings she drew among the human beings she drew were members of the Vishy dynasty, including Vasudev, the father of Krishna, Shurasena, the grandfather of Krishna, Sri Balaramaji, Lord Krishna, and many others. Anusha saw the picture of Pajumna, she became a little bashful. But when she saw the picture of Vani Ruda, she became so bashful that she immediately lowered her head and smiled, having found the man she was seeking. She identified the picture to Chitraleka as that of the man who had stolen her heart. Chitraleka was a great mystic yogini, and as soon as Usha identified the picture, Chitraleka could immediately understand that it was of Aniruddha, a grandson of Krishna's, although neither she nor Usha had previously known his name or even seen him. That very night, she traveled in outer space and within a very short time reached the city of Dwarka, <clears throat> which was well protected by Lord Krishna. She entered the palace and found Aniruddha sleeping in his bedroom on a very opulent bed. Chitraleka, by her mystic power, immediately brought Aniruddha in that sleeping condition to the city of Shunitapur so that Usha might see her desired husband. <clears throat> Usha immediately bloomed in happiness and began to enjoy the company of Aniruddha with great satisfaction. <coughs> The palace in which Usha and Chitraleka lived was so well fortified that it was impossible for any male to either enter or see inside. Usha and Aniruddha lived together in the palace, and day after day, day Usha's love for Aniruddha grew four times upon four. Usha pleased Aniruddha with valuable garments, flowers, garlands, scents, and incense. By his bedside sitting place were other paraphernalia for residential purposes, nice drinks such as milk and sherbet, and nice eatables 
which could be chewed or swallowed. Above all, she pleased him with sweet words and very obliging service. Usha worshipped Aniruddha as if he were the supreme personality of Godhead. By her excellent service, Usha made Aniruddha forget all other things and was able to draw his attention and love to her without deviation. In such an atmosphere of love and service, Aniruddha practically forgot himself and could, not, and could not recall how many days he had been away from his real home. In due course of time, Usha exhibited some bodily symptoms by which it could be understood that she was having intercourse with the male friend. The symptoms were so prominent that her actions could no longer be concealed from anyone. Usha was always cheerful in the association of Aniruddha, and she did not know the bounds of her satisfaction. The housekeeper and the guards of the palace could guess very easily that she was having relations with a male friend, and without waiting for further developments, all of them informed their master, Banasura. <clears throat> in the Vedic culture, an unmarried girl having association with the male is the greatest disgrace to the family. And so the caretakers cautiously informed their master <clears throat> that Usha was showing symptoms indicating a disgraceful association. The servants informed their master that they were not at all neglectful in, in guarding the house, being alert day and night against any young man who might enter. They were so careful that a male could not even see. <clears throat> Excuse me. They were so careful that a male could not even see what was going on there. And so they were surprised that she had become contaminated. Since they could not trace out the reason for it, they submitted the whole situation before their master. Manasura was shocked to understand that his daughter Usha was no longer a virgin maiden. This weighed heavily in his heart, and without delay, he rushed toward the palace where Usha was living. There she saw that Usha and Aniruddha were sitting together and talking. They looked very beautiful together, Aniruddha being the son of Prajumna, who was Cupid himself. Manasura saw his daughter and Aniruddha as a suitable match. Yet for family prestige, he did not like the combination at all. Manasura could not understand who the boy actually was. He appreciated the fact that Usha could not have selected anyone in the three worlds more beautiful. Aniruddha's complexion was brilliant and swarthy. He was dressed in yellow garments and had eyes just like lotus petals. His arms were very long, and he had nice, curling, bluish hair. The glaring rays of his glittering earrings and the beautiful smile on his lips were certainly captivating. Still, Banasura was very angry. When Banasura saw him, Aniruddha was engaged in playing with Usha. Aniruddha was nicely dressed, and Usha had garlanded him with various beautiful, beautiful flowers. The reddish kumkum powder put on the breasts of women were spotted here and there on the garland, indicating that Usha had embraced him. Banasura was struck with wonder that even in his presence, Aniruddha was peacefully sitting 
in front of Usha. Aniruddha knew, however, that his would-be father-in-law was not at all pleased and that he was gathering many soldiers in the palace to attack him. Thus, not finding any other weapon, Aniruddha took hold of a big iron rod and stood up before Banasura and his soldiers. He firmly took a posture, indicating that if attacked, he would strike all of the soldiers down to the ground with the iron rod. Banasura and his company of soldiers saw that the boy was standing before them just like the superintendent of death with his invincible rod. Now, under the order of Banasura, the soldiers from all sides attempted to capture and arrest him. When they dared to come before him, Aniruddha struck them with the rod, breaking their heads, arms, legs, arms, and thighs, and one after another, they fell to the ground. He killed them, just as the leader of a pack of boars kills barking dogs one after another. In this way, Aniruddha was able to escape the palace. <clears throat> Banasura knew various arts of fighting. By the grace of Lord Shiva, he knew how to arrest his enemy by the use of a nagapashu, snake noose. And thus he seized Aniruddha as he came out of the palace. When Usha received the news that her father had arrested Aniruddha, she was overwhelmed with grief and confusion. Tears glided, glided down from her eyes, and being unable to check herself, she began to cry very loudly. Thus, in the Bhaktivedanta purport of the 62nd chapter of Krishna, the meeting of Usha and Aniruddha. Chapter 63, Lord Krishna fights with Banasura. When the four months of the rainy season passed and Aniruddha had still not returned home, all the members of the Yadu family became much perturbed. They could not understand how the boy was missing. Fortunately, one day the great sage Narada came and informed the family about Aniruddha's disappearance from the palace. He explained how Aniruddha had been carried to the city of Shonitapura, the capital of Banasura's empire, and how Banasura had arrested him with the Naga Pasha, even though Aniruddha had defeated his soldiers. This news was given in detail by Narada, and the whole story was disclosed. Then the members of the Yadu dynasty, all of whom had great affection for Krishna, prepared to attack the city of Shonitapura. Practically all the leaders of the family, including Pradumna, Satyaki, Gada, Samba, Sarana, Nanda, Upananda and Padra combined together and gathered 12 Akshohini military divisions into phalanxes. Then they all went to Shinitapura and surrounded it with soldiers, elephants, horses, and chariots. Banasura heard that the soldiers of the Yadu dynasty were attacking the whole city, tearing down various walls, gates, and nearby gardens. Becoming very angry, he immediately ordered his soldiers, who were of equal caliber, to go and face them. Lord Shiva was so kind to Banasura that he personally came as the commander-in-chief of the military force, assisted by his heroic sons, Kartikeya and Ganapati. Nandishwara, Lord Shiva, seated on a bow. Nandishwara, Lord Shiva, seated on his favorite bow, led the fighting against Lord Krishna and Balaram. 
We can simply imagine how fierce the fighting was. Lord Shiva with his valiant sons on one side and Lord Krishna, the Supreme Personality of Godhead, and his elder brother, Sri Balaramaji, on the other. The fighting was so fierce that those who saw the battle were struck with wonder, and the hairs on their bodies stood up. Lord Shiva was engaged in fighting directly with Lord Krishna. Pradumna was engaged with Kartikeya, and Lord Balaram was engaged with Banasura's commander-in-chief, Kumbanda, who was assisted by Kupakarna. Samba, the son of Krishna, fought with the son of Banasura, and Banasura fought Satyaki, commander-in-chief of the Yadu dynasty. In this way, the fighting was waged. News of the fighting spread all over the universe. Demigods such as Lord Brahma from higher planetary systems along with great sages and saintly persons, Siddhas, Charnas, and Gandharvas, all being very curious to see the fight between Lord Shiva and Lord Krishna and their assistants hovered over the battlefield in their airplanes. Lord Shiva is called Abhutana because he is assisted by various types of powerful ghosts and denizens of the inferno, Bhutas, Pratas, Pramatas, Kuyakas, Dakinis, Pishachas, Kushmandas, Vitalas, Vinayakas, and Brahma Rakshasas. Of all kinds of ghosts, the Brahma Rakshasas are very powerful. They are Brahmanas who, after death, have entered the ghostly species of life. The Supreme Personality of Godhead, Sri Krishna, simply drove all these ghosts away from the battlefield with the arrows from his celebrated bow, Sharangadhanur. Lord Shiva then began to release all his selected weapons against the Personality of Godhead. Lord Sri Krishna, without any difficulty, counteracted all these weapons with counter-weapons. He counteracted the Brahmastra, similar to the atomic bomb, with another Brahmastra, and an air weapon with a mountain weapon. When Lord Shiva released a particular weapon, bringing about a violent hurricane on the battlefield, Lord Krishna presented just the opposing elephant, a mountain weapon, which checked the hurricane on the spot. Similarly, when Lord Shiva released his weapon of devastating fire, Krishna counteracted it with torrents of rain. At last, when Lord Shiva released his personal weapon, the Pashupata Astra, Krishna immediately counteracted it with the Narayana Astra. Lord Shiva then became exasperated in fighting with Lord Krishna. Krishna then took the opportunity to release his yawning weapon. When this weapon is released, the opposing party becomes tired, stops fighting, and begins to yawn. Consequently, Lord Shiva became so fatigued that he refused to fight anymore and began yawning. Krishna was now able to turn his attention from the attack of Lord Shiva to the efforts of Banasura, and he began to kill Banasura's personal soldiers with swords and clubs. Meanwhile, Lord Krishna's son Pradumna was fighting fiercely with Kartikeya, the commander-in-chief of the demigods. Kartikeya was wounded and his body was bleeding profusely. In this condition, he left the battlefield and, without fighting any more, rode away on the back of his peacock carrier. Similarly, Lord Balaram smashed Banasura's commander-in-chief, Kumbanda, with the strokes of his club. Kupakarna was also wounded in this way, and both he and Kumbanda fell on the battlefield, Kumbanda being fatally wounded. Without guidance, all of Banasura's soldiers scattered here and there. When Banasura saw that his soldiers and commanders had been defeated, his anger only increased. He thought it wise to stop fighting with Satyaki, Krishna's commander-in-chief, and instead directly attack Lord Krishna. 
Now having the opportunity to use his 1,000 arms, he rushed toward Krishna, simultaneously working 500 bows and 2,000 arrows. Such a foolish person could never measure Krishna's strength. Immediately, without difficulty, Krishna cut each of Banasura's bows into two pieces and, to check him from going further, made the horses of his chariot lie on the ground so that the chariot broke the pieces. After doing this, Krishna blew his conch shell, Panchajanya. There was a demigoddess named Kotara who was worshipped by Banasura, and their relationship was as mother and son. When Kotara was upset that Banasura's life was in danger, so M- Mother Kotara was upset that Banasura's life was in danger, so she appeared on the scene. With naked body and scattered hair, she stood before Lord Krishna. Sri Krishna did not like the sight of this naked woman, and to avoid seeing her, he turned his face. Banasura, getting this chance to escape Krishna's attack, left the battlefield. All the strings of his bows had been broken, and there was no chariot or driver, so he had no alternative but to return to a city. He lost everything in the battle. Being greatly harassed by the arrows of Krishna, all the associates of Lord Shiva, the hobgoblins and ghostly bhutas, pratas and kshatriyas, left the battlefield. Lord Shiva then took to his last resort. He released his greatest death weapon, known as Shivajwara, which destroys by excessive heat. It is said that at the end of creation, the sun becomes 12 times more scorching than usual. This 12 times hotter temperature is called Shivadwara. When the Shivadwara personified was released, he had three heads and three legs. And as he came toward Krishna, it appeared that he was burning everything to ashes. He was so powerful that he made blazing fire appear in all directions, and Krishna observed that he was coming toward him. That he was specifically coming toward him. As there is a Shiva Jwar weapon, there is also a Narayana Jwar weapon, which is represented by excessive cold. When there is excessive heat, one can somehow or other tolerate it, but when there is excessive cold, everything collapses. This is actually experienced by a person at the time of death. At the time of death, the temperature of the body first of all increases to 107 degrees Fahrenheit, and then the whole body collapses and immediately becomes as cold as ice. To counteract the scorching heat of the Shiva Jwar, there is no other weapon but the Narayana Jwara. Therefore, when Lord Krishna saw that the Shiva Jwar had been released by Lord Shiva, he had no recourse other than to re- release the Narayana Jwara. Lord Sri Krishna is the original Narayana and the controller of the Narayana Jwara weapon. When the Narayana Jwara was released, there was a great fight between the two Jwaras. When excessive heat is counteracted by extreme cold, it is natural for the hot temperature to gradually reduce, and this is what occurred in the fight between the Shiva Jwara and the Narayana Jwara. Gradually, the Shiva Jwara's temperature diminished, and the Shiva Jwara began to cry for help from Lord Shiva, for Lord Shiva was unable to help him in the presence of the Narayana Jwara. Unable to get any help from Lord Shiva, the Shiva Jwara could understand that he had no means of escape outside of surrendering unto Narayana. Lord Krishna himself. Lord Shiva, the greatest of the demigods, could not help him what to speak of the lesser demigods, and therefore the Shiva Dwar ultimately surrendered unto Krishna, bowing before him and offering a prayer so that the Lord might be pleased and give him protection.
this incident, <clears throat> this incident of the fight between the ultimate weapons of Lord Shiva and Lord Krishna proves that if Krishna gives someone protection, no one can kill him. And if Krishna does not give one protection, no one can save him. Lord Shiva is called Mahadev, the greatest of all the demigods. Although sometimes Lord Brahma is considered the greatest of all the demigods because he can create. However, Lord Shiva can annihilate the creations of Brahma. Still, both Lord Brahma and Lord Shiva act only in one capacity. Lord Brahma can create and Lord Shiva can annihilate, but neither of them can maintain. Lord Vishnu, however, not only maintains, but creates and annihilates also. Factually, the, the creation is not affected by Brahma, because Brahma himself is created by Lord Vishnu, and Lord Shiva is created or born of Brahma. The Shivajwara thus understood that without Krishna or Narayana, no one could help him. He therefore rightly took shelter of Lord Krishna and with folded hands began to pray as follows. My dear Lord, I offer my respectful obeisances unto you because you have unlimited potencies. No one can surpass your potencies and thus you are the Lord of everyone. Generally, people consider Lord Shiva the most powerful personality in the material world. But Lord Shiva is not at all is not all-powerful. You are all-powerful. This is factual. You are the original consciousness or knowledge. Without knowledge or consciousness, nothing can be powerful. A material thing may be very powerful, but without the touch of consciousness, it cannot act. A, ma a material machine may be gigantic and wonderful, but without the touch of someone conscious and in knowledge, the material machine is useless for all purposes. My Lord, you are complete knowledge, and there is not a pinch of material contamination in your personality. Lord Shiva may be a powerful demigod because of his specific power to annihilate the whole creation. And similarly, Lord Brahma may be very powerful because he can create the entire universe. But actually, neither Brahma nor Lord Shiva is the original cause of this cosmic manifestation. You are the absolute truth, the supreme Brahman, and you are the original cause. The original cause of the cosmic manifestation is not the impersonal Brahman effulgence. That impersonal Brahman effulgence rests on your personality. As confirmed in the Bhagavad Gita, the cause of the impersonal Brahman is Lord Krishna. This Brahman effulgence is likened to the sunshine, which emanates from the sun globe. Therefore, impersonal Brahman is not the ultimate cause. The ultimate cause of everything is the supreme, eternal form of Krishna. All material actions and reactions take place in the impersonal Brahman. But in the personal Brahman, the eternal form of Krishna, there is no action and reaction. The Shiva Jora continued, Therefore, my Lord, your body is completely peaceful, completely blissful, and devoid of material contamination. 
In the material body, there are actions and reactions of the three modes of material nature. The time factor is the most important element above all others because the material manifestation is affected by the agitation of time. Thus, natural phenomena come into existence and as soon as phenomena appear, fruitive activi activities are visible. As the result of these fruitive activities, a living entity takes his form. He acquires a particular nature packed up in a subtle body and gross body formed by the life air, the ego, the ten sense organs, the ten sense organs, the mind, and the five gross elements. These then create the type of body which later becomes the root cause of various other bodies which are acquired one after another by means of the transmigration of the soul. All these phenomenal manifestations are the combined actions of your material energy. You, however, are the cause of this external energy, and thus you remain unaffected by the action and reaction of the different elements. And because you are transcendental to such compulsions of material energy, you are the supreme tranquility. You are the last word in freedom from material contamination. I therefore take shelter at your lotus feet, giving up all other shelter. My dear Lord, your appearance as the son of Basudev in your role as, the, as a human being is one of the pastimes of your complete freedom. To benefit your devotees and vanquish the non-devotees, you appear in multi-incarnations. All such incarnations descend in fulfillment of your promise in the Bhagavad Gita that you appear as soon as there are discrepancies in the system of progressive life. When there are disturbances by irregular principles, my dear Lord, you appear by your internal potency. Your main business is to protect and maintain the demigods and spiritually inclined persons and to maintain the standard of material law and order. Considering your mission of maintaining such law and order, your violence toward the miscreants and demons is quite befitting. This is not the first time you have incarnated. It is to be understood that you have done so many, many times before. My dear Lord, I beg to submit that I have been very greatly chastised by the release of your Narayana Dwara, which is certainly very cooling, yet at the same time severely dangerous and unbearable for all of us. My dear Lord, as long as one is forgetful of Krishna consciousness, driven by the spell of material desires and ignorant of the ultimate shelter of your lotus, at your lotus feet, one who has accepted this material body becomes disturbed by the three, three miserable conditions of material nature. Because one does not surrender unto you, he continues to suffer perpetually. After hearing the Shiva, the Shiva Dwara, Lord Krishna replied, O three-headed one, I am pleased with your statement. Be assured that there will be no more suffering for you from, for you from the Narayana Jwara. 
not only are you now free from the fear of the Narayana, from from fear of the Narayana Jwara, but anyone in the future who simply recollects this fight between you and the Narayana Jwara will also be freed from all kinds of fear. After hearing the Supreme Personality of Godhead, the Shivadwara offered respectful obeisances under his lotus feet and left. In the meantime, Banasura somehow or other recovered from his setbacks and with rejuvenated energy returned to fight. This time Banasura appeared before Lord Krishna, who was seated on his chariot with different kinds of weapons in his 1,000 hands. Very much agitated, Banasura splashed his different weapons upon the body of Lord Krishna like torrents of rain. When Lord Krishna saw the weapons of Banasura coming at him like water coming out of a strainer, he took his sharp edge, Sudarshan disc, and began to cut off the demon's 1,000 arms, one after another. Just as a gardener tri trims the twigs of a tree with sharp cutters. When Lord Shiva saw that his devotee Banasura could not be saved, even in, the, in his presence, he came to his senses and personally came before Lord Krishna and began to pacify him by offering the following prayers. Lord Shiva said, My dear Lord, you are the worshipable object of the Vedic hymns. One who does not know you considers the impersonal Brahmajyoti to be the ultimate supreme absolute truth without knowledge that you exist behind your spiritual effulgence in your eternal abode. My dear Lord, you are therefore called Parabrahman. Indeed, your words, the words Parabrahman, have been used in the Bhagavad Gita to identify you. Saintly persons who have completely cleansed their hearts of all material contamination can realize your transcendental form, although you, although you are all-pervading like the sky, unaffected by any material thing. Only devotees can realize you and no one else. In the impersonalist conception of your supreme existence, the sky is just like your navel, fire is your mouth, and water is your semen. The heavenly planets are your head, all the directions are your ears, the earth, Urvi, is your lotus feet. The moon is your mind, and the sun is your eye. As far as I am concerned, I act as your ego. The ocean is your abdomen, and the king of heaven, Indra, is your arm. Trees and plants are the hairs on your body. The clouds are the hair on your head, and Lord Brahma is your intelligence. All the great progenitors known as Prajapatis are your symbolic representatives and religion is your heart. The impersonal feature of your supreme body is conceived of in this way, but you are ultimately the supreme person. The impersonal feature of your supreme body is only a small expansion of your energy. You are likened to the original fire, and your expansions are its light and heat. Lord Shiva continued, My dear Lord, since you are manifested universally, the different parts of the universe are the different parts of your body, and by your inconceivable energy, you can simul and by your inconceivable potency, you can simultaneously be both localized and universal. 
In the Brahma Samhita, we also find it stated that although you always remain in your abode, Goloka Vrindavan, you are present everywhere. As stated in the Bhagavad Gita, you appear in order to protect the devotees, and thus your appearance indicates good fortune for all the universe. All of the demigods are directing different affairs of the universe by your grace only. Thus the seven upper planetary systems are maintained by your grace. At the end of this creation, all manifestations of your energies, whether in the shape of demigods, human beings, or lower animals, enter into you, and all immediate and remote causes of the cosmic manifestation rest in you without distinctive, distinctive features of existence. Ultimately, there is no possibility of distinction between you and any other thing on an equal level with you or subordinate to you. You are simultaneously the cause of this cosmic manifestation and its ingredients as well. You are the supreme whole, one without a second. In the phenomenal manifestation, there are three stages. The stage of consciousness, the stage of semi-consciousness in dreaming, and the stage of unconsciousness. But your lordship is transcendental to all these different material stages of existence. You exist, therefore, in a fourth dimension, and your appearance and disappearance do not depend on anything beyond yourself. You are the supreme cause of everything, but of you there is no cause. You yourself cause your own appearance and disappearance. Despite your transcendental position, my Lord, in order to show your six opulences and advertise your transcendental qualities, you have appeared in your different incarnations, fish, tortoise, boar, Nursingha, Keshava, and others, by your personal manifestation, and you have appeared as different living entities by your separated manifestations. By your internal potency, you appear as the different incarnations of Vishnu, and by your external potency, you appear as the phenomenal world. On a cloudy day, to the common man's eyes, the sun appears to be covered. But the fact is that because the sunshine creates the cloud, the sun can never actually be covered, even though the whole sky may be cloudy. Similarly, less intelligent men claim that there is no God. But when the manifestation of different living entities and their activities is visible, enlightened persons see you present in every atom through the medium of your external and marginal energies. Your unlimitedly potent activities are experienced by the most enlightened devotees. But those who are bewildered by the spell of your external energy identify themselves with this material world and become attached to society, friendship, and love. Thus they embrace the threefold miseries of material existence and are subjected to the dualities of pain and pleasure, sometimes drowning in the ocean of attachment and sometimes being taken out of it. My dear Lord, only by your mercy and grace can the living entity get the human form of life, which is a chance to get out of the miserable condition of material existence. However, a person who possesses a human body but who cannot bring his senses under control is carried away by the waves of sensual enjoyment. As such, he cannot take shelter of your lotus feet and thus engage in your devotional service. The life of such a person is very unfortunate, and anyone living such a life of darkness is certainly cheating himself and thus cheating others also. Therefore, human society without Krishna consciousness is a society of cheaters and the cheated. My Lord, you are actually the dearmost supersoul of all living entities and the supreme controller of everything. The human being who is always illusion is afraid of ultimate death. 
A man who is simply attached to sensual enjoyment voluntarily accepts the miserable material existence and thus wanders after the will-o'-the-wisp of sense pleasure. He is certainly the most foolish man, for he drinks poison and puts aside the nectar. My dear Lord, all the demigods, including myself and Lord Brahma, as well as great saintly persons and sages who have cleansed their hearts of material attachment, have, by your grace, wholeheartedly taken shelter of your lotus feet. We have all taken shelter of you because we have accepted you as the Supreme Lord and the dearmost life and soul of all of us. You are the original cause of this cosmic manifestation. You are its supreme maintainer, and you are the cause of its dissolution also. You are equal to everyone, the most peaceful supreme friend of every living entity. You are the supreme worshipable object for every one of us. My dear Lord, let us always be engaged in your transcendental loving service so that we may get free from this material entanglement. Finally, my Lord, I may inform you that this Banasura is very dear to me. He has rendered valuable service unto me. Therefore, I want to see him always happy. Being pleased with him, I have assured him safety. I pray to you, my Lord, that as you were pleased with his forefathers, King Prahlad and Bali Maharaj, you will also be pleased with him. After hearing Lord Shiva's prayer, Lord Krishna replied, My dear Lord Shiva, I accept your statements and I also accept your desire for Banasura. I know that this Banasura is the son of Bali Maharaj and as such I cannot kill him, for that is my promise. I gave a benediction to King Prahlad that the demons who would appear in his family would never be killed by me. Therefore, without killing this Banasura, I have simply cut off his arms to deprive him of his false prestige. The large number of soldiers he was maintaining became a burden on this earth, and I have killed them all to minimize the burden. Now he has four remaining arms, and he will remain immortal, unaffected by material pains and pleasures. I know that he is one of the chief devotees of your lordship, so you can now rest assured that henceforward he need have no fear of anything. When Banasura was blessed by Lord Krishna in this way, he came before the Lord and bowed down before him, touching his head to the earth. Banasura immediately arranged to have his daughter, Usha, seated with Aniruddha on a nice chariot, and then he presented them before Lord Krishna. After this, Lord Krishna took charge of Aniruddha and Usha, who had become very opulent materially because of the blessings of Lord Shiva. Thus keeping forward a division of one Akshahini of soldiers, Krishna proceeded toward Dwarka. In the meantime, all the people of Dwarka, having received the news that Lord Krishna was returning with Aniruddha and Usha in great opulence, decorated every corner of the city with flags, festoons, and garlands. All the big roads and crossings were carefully cleansed and sprinkled with sandalwood pulp mixed with water. Everywhere was the fragrance of sandalwood. All the citizens joined with their friends and relatives to welcome Lord Krishna with great pomp and jubilation, and a tumultuous vibration of conch shells, drums, and bugles received the Lord. In this way, the Supreme Personality of God at Krishna entered his capital city of Dwarka. Yeah. Shukadev Goswami assured King Parikshit <clears throat> that the narration of the fight between Lord Shiva and Lord Krishna is not at all inauspicious like ordinary fights. On, on the contrary, if one remembers in the morning the narration of this fight between Lord Krishna and Lord Shiva and takes pleasure 
in the victory of Lord Krishna, he will never experience defeat anywhere in his struggle of life. Shall I repeat that? Would it be okay? Can I? On the contrary, if one remembers in the morning the narration of this fight between Lord Krishna and Lord Shiva and takes pleasure in the victory of Lord Krishna, he will never experience defeat anywhere in his struggle of life. This episode of Banasura's fighting with Krishna and later being saved by the grace of Lord Shiva is confirmation of the statement in the Bhagavad Gita that the worshippers of demigods cannot achieve any benediction without its being sanctioned by the Supreme Lord, Krishna. Confirmed. Here in this narration, we find that although Banasura was a great devotee of Lord Shiva, when he faced death by Krishna, Lord Shiva was not able to save him. But Lord Shiva <laughs> appealed to Krishna <clears throat> to save his devotee. And this was sanctioned by the Lord. This is the position of Lord Krishna. <clears throat> the exact words used in this connection in the Bhagavad Gita are Mayaiva vihitan hitan. This means that without the sanction of the Supreme Lord, no demigod can award any benediction to his worshipper. Thus and the Bhaktivedanta purport of the 63rd chapter of Krishna, Lord Krishna fights with Banasura. Chapter 64, the story of King Driga. This, by the way, was the Prabhupada had, had this story typed up and handed to the man who had donated the, the land at Raman Reti. And then he decided to take back half of it, which was the access road to get to it. And then Prabhupada had, um, had this typed up and um, given to him in an envelope. And then he changed his mind. Because he actually had a little, you know, dharma in him, the man who gave it, and it scared him. Once the family members of Lord Krishna, such as Samba, Prajumna, Charu, Bhanu, and Gada, all princes of the Yadu dynasty, went for a long picnic in the forest of Dwarka. In the course of their excursion, all of them became thirsty, and so they tried to find out where water was available in the forest. When they approached a well, they found no water in it, but on the contrary, within the well was a wonderful living entity. It was a large lizard. It was a large lizard. And all of them were astonished to see such a wonderful animal. They could understand that the animal was trapped and could not escape by its own effort. So out of compassion, they tried to take the large li lizard out of the well. Unfortunately, they could not get the lizard out, even though they tried to do so in many ways. When the princes returned home, their story was narrated before Lord Krishna. L huh? What's that? Uh, Lord Krishna is the friend of all living entities. Therefore, after hearing the appeal from his sons, he personally went to the well and easily got the great lizard out simply by extending his left hand. Immediately upon being touched by the hand of Krishna, the great lizard gave up his lizard shape 
and appeared as a beautiful demigod, an inhabitant of the heavenly planets. His complexion glittered like molten gold. He was decorated with fine garments, and he wore costly ornaments around his neck. How the demigod had been obliged to accept the body of a lizard was not a secret to Lord Krishna. But still, for others' information, the Lord inquired, My dear fortunate demigod, now I see that your body is so beautiful and lustrous. Who are you? We can guess that you are one of the best demigods in the heavenly planets. One of the best, one of the best demigods. All good fortune to you. I think that you are not meant to be in this situation. It must be due to the results of your past activities that you were put into the species of liver, lizard life. Still, I want to hear from you how you were put into this position. If you think that you can disclose this secret, then please tell us your identity. Actually, this large lizard was King Nriga, and when questioned by the Supreme Personality of Godhead, he immediately bowed down before the Lord, touching the ground <clears throat> to touching to the ground the helmet on his head, which was as dazzling as the sunshine. In this way, he first offered his respectful obeisances unto the Supreme Lord. He then said, My dear Lord, I am King Nriga, the son of King Ikshvaku. If you have ever taken account of all charitably disposed men, I am sure you must have heard my name. My Lord, you are the Supreme Witness. You are aware of every bit of work done by the living entities, past, present, and future. Nothing can be hidden from your eternal cognizance. <clears throat> Still, you have ordered me to explain my history and I shall therefore narrate the full story. King Nriga proceeded to narrate the history of his degradation caused by his karmakanda activities. He said that he had been very charitably disposed and had given away so many cows that the total was equal to the number of particles of dust on the earth, stars in the sky, and drops of water in a rainfall. According to the Vedic ritualistic ceremonies, a man who is charitably disposed is recommended to give cows to the brahmanas. From King Nriga's statement, it appears that he followed this principle earnestly. However, as a result of a slight discrepancy, he was forced to take birth as a lizard. Therefore, it is recommended by the Lord in the Bhagavad Gita that one who is charitably disposed and desires to derive the benefit of his charity should offer his gifts to please Krishna. To give charity means to perform pious activities by which one may be elevated to the higher planetary systems, but promotion to the heavenly planets is no guarantee that one will never fall down. Rather, the example of King Nriga definitely proves that fruit of activities, even if very pious, cannot give us eternal blissful life. <clears throat> As stated in the Bhagavad Gita, the result of work, either pious or impious, is sure to bind a man unless the work is discharged as yajna on behalf of the Supreme Personality of Godhead. King Dringa said that the cows he had given in charity were not ordinary cows. Each one was very young and had given birth to only one calf. They were full of milk, very peaceful and healthy. All the cows were purchased with money earned legally. Furthermore, their horns were gold-plated, their hooves were bedecked with silver plating, and they were covered with necklaces and with silken wrappers embroidered with pearls. He stated these valuably decorated cows had not been given to any worthless person, but had been distributed to first-class brahmanas, whom he had also decorated with nice garments and gold ornaments. The brahmanas were 
well-qualified, and since none of them were rich, their family members were always in want for necessities of life. A real Brahmana never hoards money for a luxurious life, like the Kshatriyas or the Vaishyas, but always keeps himself poverty-stricken, knowing that money diverts the mind to the materialistic ways of life. To live in this way is the vow of a qualified Brahmana, and all these Brahmanas were well situated in that exalted vow. They were well learned in Vedic knowledge. They executed the required austerities and penances in their lives and were liberal, meeting the standard of qualified Brahmanas. They were equally friendly to everyone. Above all, they were, quite, they were young and quite fit to act as qualified Brahmanas. Besides the cows, they were also given land, gold, houses, horses, and elephants. Those who were not married were given wives, maidservants, grain, silver, utensils, garments, jewels, household furniture, chariots, etc. This charity was nicely performed as a sacrifice according to the Vedic rituals. The king also stated that not only had he bestowed gifts upon the brahmanas, but he had performed other pious activities such as digging wells, planting trees on the roadside, and installing ponds along the highways. The king continued, in spite of all this, unfortunately, one of the Brahmanas' cows that I had given in charity chanced to enter amongst my other cows. Not knowing this, I again gave it in charity to another Brahmana. As the cow was being taken away by this Brahmana, its former master claimed it as his own, stating, This cow was formerly given to me, so how is it that you are taking it away? Thus there was arguing and fighting between the two brahmanas, and they came before me and charged that I had taken the cow back that I had previously given in charity. To give something to someone and then take it back is considered a great sin, especially in dealing with a brahmana. When both brahmanas charged the king with the same complaint, he was simply puzzled as to how it had happened. Thereafter, with great humility, the king offered each of them 100,000 cows in exchange for the one cow that was causing the fight between them. He prayed to them that, they, that he was their servant and that there had been some mistake. Thus, in order to rectify it, he prayed that they be very kind upon him and accept his offer in exchange for the cow. The king... The king fervently appealed to the brahmanas not to cause his downfall into hell because of this mistake. A brahmana's property is called brahmaswa, and according to Manu's law, it cannot be acquired even by the government. Both brahmanas, however, insisted that the cow was theirs and could not be taken back under any condition. Neither of them agreed to exchange it for the 100,000 cows. Thus disagreeing with the king's proposal, the two brahmanas left the place in anger, thinking that their lawful possession had been usurped. <clears throat> After this incident, when the time came for the king to give up his body, <clears throat> he was taken before Yamaraj, the superintendent of death, who asked him whether he first wanted to enjoy the results of his pious activities or suffer the results of his impious activities. Seeing that the king had executed so many pious activities and charities, Yamaraj also hinted that he did not know the limit of the king's future enjoyment. In other words, king, king Riga had remained in the well as a big lizard for a very long time. He told Lord Krishna, 
in spite of being put into that degraded condition of life, I simply thought of you, my dear Lord, and my memory was never vanquished. It appears from these statements of King Nriga that persons who follow the principles of fruitive activities and derive some material benefits are not very intelligent. Being given the choice by the superintendent of death, Yamaraj first accepted the results of his pious activities. <clears throat> Instead, he thought it better first to receive the effects of his impious activities and then enjoy the effects of his pious activities without disturbance. On the whole, he had not developed Krishna consciousness. The Krishna conscious person develops love of God, Krishna, not love for pious or impious activities. Therefore, he is not subject to the results of such action. As stated in the Brahma Sangita, a devotee by the grace of the Lord is not subject to the reactions of fruitive activities. Somehow or other, as a result of his pious activities, <clears throat> King Nrigi had aspired to see the Lord. He continued, My dear Lord, I had a great desire that someday I might be able to see you personally. I think that this great desire to see you combined with my tendency to perform ritualistic and charitable activities has enabled me to retain the memory of who I was in my former life, even though I became a lizard. Such a person who remembers his past life is called Jatismara. In modern times also, there are instances of small children recalling many details of their past lives. <clears throat> My dear Lord, you are the super soul seated in everyone's heart. <clears throat> there are many great mystic yogis who have the eyes to see you through the Vedas and Upanishads. To achieve the elevated position of realizing that they are equal in quality with you, they always meditate on you within their hearts. But although such exalted saintly persons may see you constantly within their hearts, they still cannot see you face to face. Therefore, I am very much surprised that I am able to see you personally. <clears throat> I know that I was engaged in so many activities, especially as a king. Although I was in the midst of luxury and opulence, and was subject to so much of the happiness and misery of material existence. I am so fortunate to be seeing you personally. As far as I know, when one becomes liberated from material existence, he can see you in this way. When King Rig elect elected to receive the results of his impious activities, he was given the body of a lizard because of the mistake in his pious activities. Thus, he could not be directly converted to a higher status of life, like a great demigod. However, <clears throat> along with his pious activities, he thought of Krishna. So he was quickly released from the body of a lizard and given a, the body of a demigod. By worshipping the Supreme Lord, those who desire material opulences are given the bodies of powerful demigods. Sometimes these demigods can see the Supreme Personality of Godhead 
face to face, but they are still not eligible to enter into the spiritual kingdom, the Vaikuntha planets. However, if the demigods continue to be devotees of the Lord, the next chance they get, they will enter into the Vaikuntha planets. Having attained the body of a demigod, King Nriga, continuing to remember everything, said, <clears throat> My dear Lord, you are the Supreme Lord and are worshipped by all the demigods. You are not one of the ordinary living entities. You are the Supreme Person, Purushottama. You are the source of all happiness for all living entities. Therefore, you are known as Govinda. You are the Lord of all of those living entities who have accepted material bodies and those who have not yet accepted material bodies. Among the living entities who have not accepted material bodies are those who hover in the material world as evil spirits or live in the ghostly atmosphere. However, those who live in the spiritual kingdom, the Vaikuntalokas, have bodies not made of material elements. You, my Lord, before entering the heavenly planets, King Nriga circumambulated the, the Lord, circumambulated the Lord, touched his helmet to the Lord's lotus feet and bowed before him. Seeing the airplane from the heavenly planets present before him, he was given permission by the Lord to board it. After the departure of King Nriga, Lord Krishna expressed his appreciation for the king's devotion to the brahmanas as well as his charitable disposition and his performance of Vedic rituals. Therefore, it is recommended that if one cannot directly become a devotee of the Lord, one should follow the Vedic principles of life. It comes to what we heard before, what we talked about before. This will enable him one day to see the Lord by being promoted either directly to the spiritual kingdom or indirectly to the heavenly kingdom where he has hope of being transferred to the spiritual planets. At this time, Lord Krishna was present among his relatives who were members of the Chatriya class. To teach them through the exemplary character of King Riga, he said, even though a Chatriya king may be as powerful as fire, it is not possible for him to usurp the property of a Brahmana and utilize it for his own purpose. If this is so, how can ordinary kings who falsely think themselves the most powerful beings within the material world usurp a Brahmana's property? I do not think that taking poison is as dangerous as taking a Brahmana's property. For ordinary poison, there is, a tr there is treatment. One can be relieved from its effects. But if one drinks the poison of taking a Brahmana's property, there is no remedy for the mistake. The perfect example is King Riga. He was very powerful and very pious, but due to the small mistake of unknowingly usurping a Brahmana's cow, he was condemned to the abominable life of a lizard. Ordinary poison affects only those who drink it, an ordinary fire can be extinguished simply by pouring water on it. But the irony fire, ignited by the spiritual potency of a Brahmin who is dissatisfied, can burn to ashes the whole family 
of a person who provokes such a brahmana. Formerly, the brahmanas used to ignite the fire of sacrifice not with matches or any other external fire, but with their powerful mantras called arani. If someone even touches a brahmana's property, his family is ruined for three generations. However, if a brahmana's property is forcibly taken away, the taker's family for ten generations before him and ten generations after will be subject to ruination. On the other hand, if someone becomes a pure Vaishnava or a devotee of the Lord, ten generations of his family before his birth and ten generations after will be liberated. <clears throat> Lord Krishna continued, If some foolish king who is puffed up by his wealth, prestige, and power wants to usurp a brahmana's property, he should be understood to be clearing his path to hell. He does not know how much he has to suffer for such an unwise act. If someone takes away the property of a very liberal brahmana who is encumbered by a large dependent family, then such a usurper is put into the hell known as kumbhipaka. Not only is he put into this hell, but his family members also have to accept such a miserable condition of life. A person who takes away a brahmana's property, whether it was originally given by him or by someone else, is condemned to live for at least 60,000 years as a miserable insect in stool. Therefore I instruct you, all my boys and relatives present here, do not, even by mistake, take the possession of a brahmana and thereby pollute your whole family. If someone even wishes to possess such property, let alone attempts to take it away by force, the duration of his life will be reduced. He will be defeated by his enemies, and after being bereft of his royal position, when he gives up his body, he will become a serpent, giving trouble to all other living entities. My dear boys and relatives, I thereby advise you that even if a brahmana becomes angry with you and calls you by ill names or curses you, still you should not retaliate. On the contrary, you should smile, tolerate him, and offer your respects to the brahmana. You know very well that even I myself offer my obeisances to the brahmanas with great respect three times daily. You should therefore follow my instruction and example. I shall not forgive anyone who does not follow them, and I shall punish him. You should learn from the example of King Riga that even if someone unknowingly usurps the property of a brahmana, he is put into a miserable condition of life. Thus, Lord Krishna is always engaged in purifying the conditioned living entities. Thus, Lord Krishna, who is always engaged in purifying the conditioned living entities, gave instruction not only to his family members and the inhabitants of Dwarka, but to all the members of human society. After this, the Lord entered his palace. Thus ends the Bhaktivedanta purport of the 64th chapter of Krishna, the story of King Nriga. Bravo. There were a couple of points that I really struck me in there. One of them was just kind of historical. You probably mentioned how there are many instances of children who remember their past lives. I didn't become aware of the research that was being done at University of Virginia until much later in the, you know, past the year 2000, I think. And I was wondering where that, um, where he got, where that statement came from. So I wasn't aware of any other 
consolidated evidence of that previously. Yes? At least I just downloaded this because it was the only edition I could find on the e-reader. It's the original um, edition, and that part wasn't in there about the that for that uh, in the original pre like I guess I don't know I don't know. <laughs> It's just a lot of the things. So are anyway, it, on this it's page. a that part is there in that, not there in that version. So I'd have to ask Gervita wh where it came from exactly. He wouldn't add something like that as an addendum, but it, it had to be in some manuscript somewhere. Um, there was one other point. Do you have other points before we? Yeah, please go ahead. Yeah, back there. Um, my question is that in this story, it says even if brahmanas become angry and call you names, ah. and then other place we see that a brahmana has been given hundred thousand cows in exchange for a cow, but they're still angry. So how's that brahmanical behavior? Well, I mean, one thing you can note is that. Practically every progressive incident that takes place in the Bhagavatam, not practically, every progressive incident that takes place in the Bhagavatam, where there's a, a shift and some huge lesson is learned by someone, is preceded by a curse of a Brahmana. So, those kinds of uh, incidents where Brahmins become angry and offer curses because of their insight, they are offering some kind of lesson that uh, is purifying to a person. You can't naturally just immediately assume it's because they're not qualified Brahmins because the story says they are and um, therefore their anger must have a purifying reason. In the case here, obviously he got to meet Lord Krishna. So they're instrumental in bringing people forward. I mean, you know, Gajendra was in Jadumna, he got cursed. Prikshit Maharaj got cursed by a Brahmin. The whole Bhagavatam took place because of that. And I guarantee you can go through and check every one of them. It all happens because of that. Part of the answer. Other points? It's a great story. Just the mentality of, also, it doesn't say it explicitly, but the idea, it just says he got bewildered when he was asked by Yamaraj, do you want the impious or the pious credits first? And he took the impious credits. But so there's a way in which, you know, the, enjoy, the idea to enjoy the material world has some way of like, let me get everything else out of the way, and then, I'll, you know, I'll have... I'll just have a clear sailing from here on, but it just n never happens. <laughs> good, Marge. That's a good one. That's a good one. Naveen's got something really hot. Does he? Yeah. It's from his Bhaktivedanta studies, I can tell. It's some inside information. Hare Krishna. Hare yeah, Krishna. the Acharya's comment that 
because he made that comment that you must have certainly heard about me being a generous person, that he was not that, you know, devotional or pure as such, because he's kind of bragging about his great exploits. And so that also explains why he was kind of a little bewildered and first took the bad to then enjoy the the good and then went off into the heavenly. Although he was fortunate, he met the Lord, but still there was some agenda there. As we were reading this chapter, um, one thing entered in, into my mind. Into your mental system? Mental system. In my mental system, something came in as a result of all the hearing and chanting I've done, I guess, for who knows what it is. Anyway, I was remembering when uh, Krishna was tied to the mortar, the granny mortar, and just before he pulled down the twin Arjun trees, what did he say? I remember, he remembered that Narada had said that these people... Well, that, that's a, but he said, Narada said that I have to deliver these two. So I have to do it. So the point I'm making is that how fortunate we are that we're, we've come in contact with a, a personality of, of that level, of that stature, Srila Prabhupada. And Srila Prabhupada promised us that if we chant 16 rounds every day and try to do it without offense, and follow the four regular principles strictly for the rest of our lives, that we will go back to Godhead. Now, just measure that up with, you know, all the pious activities that Nriga did. And I'm not saying that we won't, you know, that we, we can't do something wrong to kind of, you know, break that contract. But if we do that, then Krishna takes Srila Prabhupada's promise so seriously that he will take us back to Godhead. And that is really Maha, 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 Bhagya. There it is. There you have it. I have a question, if that's okay. Questions are okay. Yeah. Um, I, I've kind of, I feel... I can't understand how King Nriga got so severely punished for uh, a mistake. I mean, he didn't really have any control over the situation and wandered over to the wrong herd. Well, the point of the story is that when you take off on a path where you're depending on your own power, karma khanda really has to do with you're taking the scriptures, yes, and giving charity, but the idea is... You found the answer? Oh. Um, the idea is that because you're doing it on your, on, with your own power, you're, you're at risk. That's why Krishna gives that all-encompassing offer at the end of the Bhagavad Gita, Sarvadharman Prityaja, just surrender to me. Anybody, karmis, gyanis, yogis, they all have some sense that I'm doing it myself. 
And when you do that, then there's a risk because you're depending on your own power. But in bhakti, you're just depending on Krishna's grace. So one of the really strong points here is that material nature is inexorable and I mean, you could say it's unpredictable or you could say the opposite, it's very predictable. And that it, it, it's, it's no joke. I mean, when Prahlad Maharaj prays to Lord Nishingadev, he says, I'm not afraid of you like everybody else is. But I'm afraid of your maya because it's so entangling that in any second, little inattention, it can be dragged, dragged away. So karmakanda really is a, it's a materialistic pursuit. And because of that, you're just playing with fire. I always thought he wasn't really punished that severely anyway. I mean, you know, being a lizard in the well and then getting pulled out by Krishna himself doesn't sound really too bad to me. Prabhu? I, I just wondered, uh, these Brahmanas, they were dissatisfied. Is it, is it like a, a team in the, this story that uh, if you first make a mistake, then whatever you try to please them in some deal. Let's say you give them something and you, oh, it didn't belong to me what I gave, belonged to my wife, take it back, I will give you anything else. It's like, it's done. You cannot, they cannot get pleased. Or is it like... That, when something like that happens, it's destiny. Because something intractable, you can't explain where it came from. It doesn't make any sense, like that doesn't. But it's just comes at you full bore. It's really destiny. And there's that verse by Prithu Maharaj where he says that uh, when destiny comes to you like that, don't try to adjust it because you'll become more entangled in anxiety. And whatever you can change. Microphone. And whatever you can change, don't lament it. Just accept it. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a weird thing. Two qualified Brahmins, and they won't accept 100,000 cows in exchange for, you know. <laughs> but haven't you been in situations like that where you go like, oh my God, look what just happened to me. And it just goes off sideways, and there's nothing you can really do about it. I've had things like that happen on Sankirtan where, you know, I said the wrong thing to somebody, and it just escalates. And I just realize... <laughs> And I just realized, like, you got to be careful the way you move in the world. You got to be really careful. It's a really refining process on Sankirtan because you get immediate uh, response from your environment. And the, that's really, you know, one of the great lessons of the universe. It's meant to sensitize us. And these stories, you know, they're real. And, like, don't play with fire. Stay under the shelter of Krishna and don't try to go at yourself and try to arrange things, the material nature, it'll come back and bite you. Prabhu? Oh, and then Maharaj? Or Maharaj and then Prabhu? Tai goes to the runner. Infield fly rule. Make a bigger offer, 100,000, anywhere. Uh -huh. But... but uh, 
but brahmanas don't think like that they don't care about the amount <laughs> they they care about the principle right they care about justice they thought they were treated unjustly that's why they become upset uh -huh. and left and that was the reason he got the punishment or commentary from the shastra one of the two brahmans had given up the the habit of accepting charity so he was done accepting charity so the 100000 didn't figure into yeah it was not and the other one just insisted on his on his right he just wanted that one that he'd been given he was not greedy matter of principle yeah and the other had already given up so it was locked and set there was nothing well why why wouldn't it, if the other one had already given up why wouldn't if he had been more detached that part i didn't understand Okay, anyway, that's just what Prabhu was saying, right? Thank you. I could just see your, your, uh, all the money we put into your education has really paid off. <laughs> Sonny boy. <laughs> we sent him off to the university and here he comes back. And when you think about it, you know, he saw Krishna, right? And then what happened? He went to the heavenly planets. And he went to the heaven and planets. So it's like... And that was part, he said, because he thought of Krishna. Yeah. He, he thought of Krishna. It was, that, was, that was the reason he got, he got to see Krishna. But because he kept in his heart the material calculation, he had to go, go to the heavenly planet, which is a better position than he was in before. He was just a worldly king, more or less. Would, it, would that be different if would that be different if, if, uh, if he would have taken the other choice? What? In other what? words, so he, he prefers to enjoy first and then suffer. Well, it would have taken, anyway. But, but one, one point, and that came up to me in the, in the midst of that section, was how powerful it is thinking of Krishna. It's mentioned in the, a story of Agasura, that if one brings the form of the Lord into one's mind even one time, then it's so auspicious that um, you know, one's uh, material life will be um, uh, purified just by that one remembrance of Krishna. And there are uh, lots of verses. What is it? Um, in the Amadeya, Shravanad, Kirtanad, Yatsmaranad, Yatpravanad, Apikuchet, Shradho, Pisadya, Savanaya, Kalpate, Kutakpanaste, Bhagavanu Darshanat. That verse says that if somebody takes um, to the process of hearing and chanting, um, e even one time, then they become purified, rectified. But what to speak of somebody seeing them face to face? So the point is that if, if there's a. Uh, a concerted effort to remember Krishna. How much? How auspicious is that? If people, incidentally, in the course of their performing their karma kanda or their jnana kanda, they somehow or other think of Krishna, somehow or other, incidentally, then what about the bhakti yogis who are fully concentrating on him? In the story, just the last point of um, the Avanti Brahmana and w the way he loses all his wealth because he's a miser. And then after everyone's forsaken him and he's lost all his wealth, 
he takes off as a sannyasi, wandering. And the reason that's given, as I think it's in the commentary, Vishnu Chakravarti Thakur, that once when he was performing a, a, some ritual, he happened to think devotionally of the Lord during that time. And that one incident left the seed of devotion in his heart. So when all his wealth was wiped out, all that was left was the impetus to attain Krishna. Now, am I remembering right? I'm, if I'm remembering wrong, just know that I'm an old man and it's, it's, it's heading, I'm headed in that direction. Didn't he ask Krishna that I'll, that I'll always remember you? Isn't that what he said? Just, just, that's the only thing. So, hey, he got the thing. By the whole thing Krishna, and nothing got, but the thing. He got the whole thing, nothing but the thing. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main I thing. I mean, Dhruva Maharaj, you know, he, 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 he had this desire. And then once he saw Krishna, he said, no, I don't want anything, I just want you. And Krishna said, okay, but I'm going to also give you the desire you had before. We're going to throw in your previous... And anything you else, the order ever desired that you didn't know you remembered your desire. I'm going to give all that, and then you're going to go back to Godhead. So and what's by the, the way, conclusion? You're going to, and by the way, you're going to get complete, you know, spiritual, I mean, uh, material enjoyment, full opulence for 35,000 years. What's our, what can be our conclusion then? Keep remembering Krishna at all costs. Keep remembering Krishna at all costs. Yeah, A-R-K. no matter what you think and don't think, that's, that's... A-R-K, always remember Krishna. A-R-K, dot, 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 exclamation mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. We still have a couple minutes. Would anybody else, uh, yeah, you're on a roll, you should take that mic. I was uh, thinking about the... Uh, Store the chapter about uh, talks between Krishna and Rukmini. Yeah, it's so wonderful. Oh yeah, and I think it makes it is how Prabhupada presents it. I don't know if anyone noticed, but uh, if you compare it with Bhagavatam verses, for example, what Krishna spoke in the beginning in the first uh, part of his conversation is just ten, nine, ten verses. But Prabhupada put so much more, so much detail, and it's not in the commentaries also. So it's, uh, it makes it yeah, so... Yeah, I beautiful. love that chapter. And one of the things that really struck me this time, and I've, it's, it has previously, was how intelligent Rukmini is. Just this, the way that she turns it all around, it's so devotional and to the point of who Krishna actually is. He presents this whole twisted idea of uh, why, why she shouldn't stay with him. Nailed it. Exactly. That's my point. That's what I'm saying. Did you have a point? Yes, go ahead. Um, very rich discussion. Uh, so, I was also astonished that uh, he said even the body of a lizard uh, he was able to remember Krishna, so it looks like that was incidental, exceptional case as you just described. Um, so I'm trying to draw a lesson here, like when he was given the choice by Yamraj, was there anything that he could have done differently uh, or was it destination in this case and also because the cow came back, so it was out of his control seemingly. 
So, was it destination or he could have done differently? Because uh, you have mentioned that Acharya say Bharat Maharaj also, uh, all he, if he just had Sadhu Sangha, then he could have avoided well, that. Well, I mean, fate. really the point is, he did what he did. It was, there was a lot of momentum there, because obviously he had a, an industry thing going on there. The amount of cows he gave away was indicative of the, you know, how much uh, prepared he was for that kind of lifestyle. You don't give away trillions of cows without really being prepared for it. So it doesn't really, the story really doesn't open the door for that kind of thing. It just shows how f fixed he was in that idea of getting pious credits by giving charity. And um, the lesson is what happens. Our consciousness has to be adjusted towards Krishna. Yep. Got to remember Krishna. Because that was the only saving grace in it, actually, that he remembered Krishna. Always remember Krishna and never forget him. Those are the every other rule and regulation is a servant of those two rules and regulations. Thank you for joining the extraordinary readings today from the Krishna book. We'll never be the same. The damage is done, it can't be taken back. And thanks for joining us online from various places around the world. Nice to see the courtyard filled up. So many Extraordinary devotees taking shelter here. And um, we'll start up again tomorrow at a different time because it's Akadashi and there's a different uh, schedule here at the ashram for Akadashi. Prashadam's at uh, 12 noon tomorrow. There is no breakfast. There's just brunch if you start at 11.59. And, um, and the readings tomorrow will be from 10... No, yeah, from 10 to 12, 10 to 12, and then lunchtime, and then it'll start up again at 3.30 to 3.30 to 6.30. Thank you very much. Gaur Premanande. Nachari Armarman, Nachari Armarman, Nachari Armarman, Nachari Armarman, hey, Nachari Armarman, Nachari Armarman. Not to the arm, my man, not to the arm, my man.